First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. Paul writes, as he is moved by the Holy Spirit, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he is betrayed took bread. And when he had given things, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Well, let's go to the Lord before we go through our text here this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us. We thank you for putting it in human language so that we can understand it. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who now illuminates it so that we can get it correct. And so I pray this morning again that your Holy Spirit would teach us as we go through this text impress upon our hearts the truths of your word as you have intended them, and that you will protect your word, and that we will go forth more in love of our Lord Jesus Christ, more informed as to what is required from us, and that we would go out obedient and more conform to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, because we have met with him here this morning, hearing from his word. I pray this in your name and your glory. If you were to look at Christianity, and we've said this before, it's really one of the most humdrum religions that out there. We have no pomp, we have no circumstance, do we? There's really nothing that sets us apart. There's not any great parades. We've got really nothing going on. 
And in fact, early Christians found it difficult to come into Christianity because they just thought they were used to so much uh, things going on, right, that they thought, wow, there's really nothing to this religion. And in fact, if we were to look at the church, and we were to look at Christianity, we would recognize that really there's only two things that we do that are really an outward expression of anything. And that's communion and baptism. Those are the two things that are, we can actually physically demonstrate. Those are the only, what we would call, the only things that we actually do. So it should be no surprise, because these are the two things, really, that God, Christ, has commanded for the church to do. These are the things that Christ laid out. This is what he says. This is what you need to do. Baptize, right? Lord's Supper. You must come together in communion. So he's given these commands to the church. The only two really visible manifestations of Christianity to demonstrate who the church is. So it should be no surprise then to find out that the church itself has fought through history over these two issues more than any other issues that you can think of. There have been wars fought over this. There have been divisions. There have been new uh, denominations that have sprung up. People have been put to death over this. And so it's no surprise that the church would find a way to find to fight over this because it's central to who we are and it's important. And it should be no surprise that Satan has had his hand in this because if he can corrupt these things in the church, he can set the church off in a direction that it should be going in. And ultimately, if he can undermine them, he can undermine the fellowship of the church, even sometimes deceiving people who are not even really in a true church. And so this morning, as we come to our text, and as we're starting through this next two Sundays, we're going to be, at least I think it's two, but we might stretch it to three. As we come to this section here, he's dealing with communion. He's dealing with one of those central pillars that Christ gave to the church, that visible manifestation of who the church is. And as he comes here, he's going to look at this, at this section and he's going to say, what have you been doing, Corinthians? You guys have been messing up the Lord's Supper. You've been messing up communion. And he says, you, you perverted it. You haven't been celebrating it correctly. And then he's going to give them a correction. He's going to say, this is how it's supposed to be done. And then he's going to give a warning about divine judgment. And so as we come here this morning, we're going to be looking at that, at that communion and the centrality of Christian, to Christianity. Now, one of the things that we recognize right away, that communion historically was what? It came out of what? The Passover. We recognize that back in Egypt, God delivered Israel out of Egypt. And so, just before they left, God said to the Israelites, you need to take a lamb, right? Bring it in. You need to sacrifice it. You need to put that blood on the posts of your house so the angel of death does not come and kill the firstborn in your family. And here was God's means of demonstrating 
deliverance as he would save the firstborn of the Israelites and he would take Israel out of Egypt and he would, he would take them out of slavery and make them a nation. And not only did he deliver them physically, but he demonstrated substitutionary atonement where now a lamb would be, there'd be a substitute to pay the price for sin. And so when Israel got out of Egypt, it became a yearly Passover feast where they would come together and they would remember as a nation what God had done for them. And they would gather to Jerusalem and they would come together in a common celebration of their salvation by being brought out of Egypt. And it's exactly that that Jesus celebrated with his own disciples just before his death. He said, I want to celebrate the Passover with you. And now Jesus will now take the Passover and he will change it into the Lord's Supper. He will now change it into communion. And now the remembrance will not be deliverance, physical deliverance of Egypt. It will be spiritual deliverance from sin because Christ himself will die. He will be the sacrificial lamb that will bring redemption to those who believe. And so Mark 14 records the account of that Passover meal. And we just read in Matthew as Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup when he had given thanks and gave it to him and they drank it. And he said unto them, this is my blood of the New Testament, or New Covenant, which is shed for many. Verily I say to you, I will drink it no more, the fruit of the vine, until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus took that Passover and he says, that Passover was pointing towards me, that, that lamb was pointing to me, and now I'm here, and now I'm giving you a celebration, now you will have a meal where a uh, celebration where you will once again celebrate my death and resurrection and ultimately not just my death and resurrection but your salvation because I have saved you from sin and restored you to God. Well certainly the Lord's Supper became a practice of the early church. If we look at it carefully it would certainly seem that the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper every day. They were eager, right? By the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, it seemed like they had come down to having the Lord's Supper once a week. Now again, the scripture doesn't tell us how, how often to have the Lord's Supper, but it certainly would seem that the supper that they were having was once a week at that time. Now along came with that was the idea that they would have a love feast. In other words, just like the past, the Jewish Passover, they were eating a meal. The idea was they got together, they broke bread, they had fellowship together, and so there was a love feast that went, would go on. It kind of, for the Jews, it came out of the Passover. For some of the Gentiles who were coming out of paganism, they used to have potlucks together in their celebrations, in their pagan worship. And so it was a natural thing to flow out of that, that there would be a love feast where they would get together, they would bring food together, they would eat together, they would fellowship together.
But by the time we get to Corinth here, we see that things have gone awry. Things have gone off the rails. And that love feast is no longer accomplishing what it should. And in fact, they have been gathering together and they've been getting together. But instead of it being a unifying time together, a demonstration of equality, it has become a feast that has demonstrated clearly that there are haves and have-nots. There are slaves and there are owners. There are those who are rich and those who are poor. And so Paul sees this and he looks and he sees what is taking place here in Corinth and he says, you know what, I need to correct that. I need to correct that. There needs to be a correction and an understanding of what the word supper is so that instead of being destructive, we, we recognize how it should be proclaimed. And so as we come to our text this morning, I really want to just go through this text literally in with three ideas. And, and we're just going to do the first idea today. We're not going to get up through all three. But it's, he says here, and what I want us to understand is that there are three, if we celebrate the Lord's Supper correctly. It will first of all bring unity to the church. The next section he says, if you do celebrate the Lord's Supper correctly, it will lead to a proper understanding of the crucifixion of Christ. And then the last section he says, if you, if you, celebrate the Lord's Supper correctly, it will keep you from divine judgment, or we should say divine discipline as a believer, divine discipline. And we'll, we'll differentiate that when we get to that text. So this morning, I just want us to look at this and with the idea of if we celebrate the Lord's Supper correctly, it will bring unity to the body. And in fact, we're actually going to spend most of the time seeing that it, what's happening is, is the exact opposite of what is intended to do that. So Paul begins with, a, with constructive criticism. He says, for I received from the, no, that's verse 23, verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So he says, in contrast, but in giving this instruction, and it's going, and now he's looking forward here, and he says, I'm giving you instruction, and this is a military term that was often used, for giving from a superior to an inferior, which means in the army, you do as you're told. And so Paul is coming with full apostolic authority here, and he says, I'm going to give you instruction. Now that's a different tone than he started with in verse 2. Remember, he says, but I want you to understand, right? In verse 2, he's, and, and that language that he uses in verse 2 of chapter 11, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head, is language that he uses when he's teaching something new. In other words, here I want to give you some instruction. I want to tell you something that maybe you're unaware of. But that's not the tone that he takes here. This is a completely different tone. I'm going to give you instructions, instructions that you need to hear, something that you must obey because things aren't right. He says, I do not praise you. I'm not, I'm not here. Remember he started in chapter 3, I mean 11 verse 2. Now I praise you. 
because you remember me in everything and have firmly to the traditions. He says, I praised you before, but now what I'm about to instruct you about, I'm not going to praise you. This is something that is, needs to be corrected, something that needs to be changed. And then he gives the explanation here, the word because, a term of explanation. Because what? You come together, not for the better, but for the worse. He says, when you come together, it doesn't bring spiritual edification. It doesn't bring glory to God. In fact, when you come together, it's actually worse than if you hadn't come together at all. It's better if you hadn't come together at all. That's quite a statement, isn't it? You are actually bringing discredit to the Lord and to the church by the way that you guys are functioning. It would be better for you not to have a love feast. It would be better if you never absorbed the Lord's communion than to abuse them so. The word for worse here is a comparative term with, with the Greek word kakos, which represents moral evil. Instead of the celebrations being times of loving fellowship and spiritual enrichment, they involve selfish, indulgent, shaming the poor brother and mocking the Lord's sacrificial death. And he says, you come together, you're not building the church, you're not glorifying God, you're actually, it's worse. People are worse when you come together. It's kind of incredible, right? In, in, in the light of Hebrews 10, right? Forsake not the gathering of yourselves together, assembling of you together. You need to do that to provoke one another to love and good works. That's why you come together. And Paul says, you Corinthians, you have so desecrated what is taking place here that it'd be better if you didn't come together. You've been gluttonous, selfish, drunken. And then you've slapped the Lord's Supper on the end. So Paul says, I'm going to straighten this out. I'm going to straighten this out. This cannot continue this way. And then Paul says, not only that constructive criticism, but he demonstrative divisions among you. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Now, if you continue reading on this passage, you're not going to find a secondly. So Paul, Paul is just like, this is the first thing that comes to his mind, and this is important. This is preeminent, right? Doesn't always fall through with the secondly, but he says, firstly, in the first place, when you come together as a church, now, the word church here is the word ecclesia. This church here is the word for church here is the word of assembly or gathering together, the called out ones. It is never used of a building. It is always used of what? People. It's always used of people. And he says, when you, when the people are gathering together, when you come together as a church, he says, I hear that divisions exist among you. He says there's divisions. The word here is for schisms. It 
and he says, there are schisms among you. There, there are the, you, are, you are fighting apart. There are divisions among you. Basically, it means a di- schism is a difference of opinion. Basically, it's just a difference of opinion. And he says, you are coming together and you have a difference of opinion. There's divisions among the people. He's not saying that they're not meeting together. He's not saying that the the parties aren't getting together. He just says, when you're together, you're all in your little cliques. You're all together in your different, different areas. And he says, when you come together, that's what's taking place. You're not coming together as a body united. You're coming and you're messed up. Remember, he already dealt with some of this earlier in in chapter three, right? I'm of Paul, what? I'm of Apollos. Already had their theological teaching divisions, right? The teachers weren't divided. They weren't even teaching anything different. They just liked their style better, right? Personality cults, they were already divided. And now they're being divided over wealth. And so there's fighting within the church. There's division within the church. And Paul says, guess what? In part, I believe it. In part, I believe it. He says, I hear, and the idea is I keep, I'm hearing and I keep on hearing people. It's continual. There's continual reports. There's division among you. And he says, in part, I believe it. Now, we've just listed that they were fighting over other things. So Paul's not, he's already addressed the idea that they're not united and there's division. So it should be no surprise. Should be no surprise. But Paul Paul also believes it. Maybe he's giving them a benefit of the doubt. Maybe he doesn't want to be too harsh on them. But he says, I also believe that there's divisions among you because he says you must have you must have divisions. And he gives a theolo- he gives us a theological aside, we could say, in verse 19, because he says, I believe it for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So now Paul says, well, actually, I believe it. And here's why. Because theologically, I know there must be divisions among you. It is necessary is the, is the idea here. There must be divisions among you. Now, it's interesting. This is the word where we get our factions among you. This is the word where we get heresy from, right? Heresy. And again, when we think of heresy today, we think of someone who is off the rails theologically, someone who's left the gospel, who's no longer orthodox. But that wasn't the original meaning of this term. It really has the same idea of having a different opinion or a different idea. And he says, there are heresies among you. In other words, there are differences, differences of opinion. Now you've have different ideas and you've broken into your little cliques. And he says, you think differently. 
And that's why we would really say that little phrase, a heretic is a tick that doesn't tick like you tick, actually reflects this Greek word best, right? Because it's not that they're, they're, they're heretical, it's that they have what? The idea is a different point of view. They just don't tick like you tick, and so you have your own little group. And so, it's a great... Again, it comes from the idea of, of choice, choosing. It simply means the choice of a group who hold a given opinion. Now, at this point, you might say, but Paul, I don't get this. You've already told us, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I mean, 1 Corinthians 1.10, that we are to what? Do you remember back in 1 Corinthians 1.10? We flip back there. He says what? Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but you must be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. What are you doing, Paul? Do you think he's confused? What happened here? But I thought, but I thought we weren't supposed to have divisions well he says it's must you it's necessary you must have it so why because God is doing something that needs to be done what's he doing well Paul answers right here in the text so that why are there factions so that those who are approved may become evident among you In other words, he says God is working through the divisions within the church for a purpose. In other words, there is going to be divisions that come that demonstrate, first of all, those who are faithful and true. Now, the word here has the idea uh, approved or attested or proven of God to to be trusted with the gospel. And Paul is saying there, that there are those circumstances and divisions in the church to demonstrate to you who is truly following Christ and who isn't. Who is his disciples? Who, are, who go through the test, who are proved through fire to the point where it's clear who they are? And so Paul says, God allows divisions in the church to test those who are true and good. If there was never any testing, if there was no kind of evil, how would we know who stood, who was willing to stand for Christ? And so he says, how do we know if people are truly following Christ? Because when the tough, when things get tough and 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 their conflict comes up. Who are those who act Christ-like? Who responds like they should in gentleness and meekness? Who are those who are faithful to the truth and will not compromise the truth? Who would rather stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and lose their own life than to compromise the truth? And so he says, how do we know who to follow? How do we know who are his? by those who what stand when the trials come. And so God allows this division and a difference, a difference of opinion 
in order to purify our faith and to purify those to demonstrate who are worthy to be his. James 1, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he is tested, right? He'll be approved. The one who goes through temptation comes out victorious. And so God will often test his people so that we know who are his, who are the ones who are sufficient for leadership. Those one are truly his. And oftentimes when trials comes and differences come and, and difficulties come, people what? Fold. People walk away. And often people even ministry don't stand because when the struggle comes, what? They fail. I would go a little further. Not only does this testing prove who are who are the true, we would call, those whose faith is refined and who we should follow, those who are truly following after the truth, but it also demonstrates who's the true Christian. Who, who is truly, it, it severs the wheat from among the tares. As 1 John says in 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. And they went out that it might be manifest that they were not of us. In other words, the testing comes and we start to find out who. Who follows the word of God? Who's obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is willing to do what is necessary? And oftentimes in the church, it is, only, it is through these times of division that we find out who truly is saved. And oftentimes you will see people and there's a dispute on the truth and they refuse to submit to the truth. And eventually what we find is that people walk away and we, we find out eventually what? Simply unsaved. They are incapable of following the truth. In fact, Titus 3.10 says, you find someone factious, give him an ambition admonition give him another admonition if he doesn't listen to those two put him up out of the church right if they're factious put them out that's a demonstration that they should they are either an unbeliever or an unrepented believer who will not go to the truth now at this point you might remember that paul said there must be divisions and some of you say, you know what? I think my spiritual gift is being factious and I can actually help this process on, right? I, I think, you know, I didn't, right? I think that's my spiritual gift. Well, if you look at the list of spiritual gifts, this is not a spiritual gift. And so if you have the gift of factiousness, you need to take it out, bury it in the field deep and forget where you buried it, right? So this is not for you to what? This isn't encourage you to be factious. Scripture says that, what does it say? It is impossible, Luke 17, 1. It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe to him through who they come. It would be better for him for that a millstone be hanged around his neck and he was cast into the sea. Right? In other words, if you if you're if you're 
According to Jesus, your ministry, if you're factious, will be quite short, right? (laughs) In other words, woe unto you, right? You're not supposed to be factious, but we know that this comes because we live in a sinful world with sometimes believers who are unwilling to be obedient and even unbelievers who have come into the church. So this is not a call for you to be factious. This isn't a call for you to exercise that gift. It's just a recognition that this does take place. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, this is what we're headed for, right? Unity. Recognizing that even as we strive for that, there are going to be those who are disobedient, those who are even unbelievers in the church. And God will use that division to ultimately test and demonstrate who are his. He says, it may become evident among you. You'll know, you'll know, you'll know who they are. And then he now documents a selfish approach This is what's taking place as they come together. He says, therefore, in light of what I've told you, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, when you come together, the way that you are coming together, you may be be taking the elements, you may be doing all the outside things, but the reality is because of the way you're behaving, you're actually not taking the Lord's Supper. You're not celebrating as, as it should be. He says, for in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now there's two ways to understand this passage. There are those who would say that what's taking place here is that the rich people are coming together to have the love feast early because they, they're not on a schedule. They're not slaves. And so they are eating together and they are starting to eat. And by the time the slaves show up for after their job, because they would meet in the evening, all the food is gone. And so the rich people have eaten themselves till they've eaten all of the food and they drank all of the wine and they're drunk. And so when they show up, we have the slaves who are poor and there's no food to share because the rich have already eaten it all. Another view is simply this. The church is meeting in rich people's homes because you would need a big home. And so the owner of the house would be rich. He would invite his friends of prestige and they would all eat, we would say, in their dining room. It's not called a dining room, but it would be equivalent to their dining room. They could put about 10 people in there laying down to eat. And so those with privilege would get all of the good food. They get all the good service. People who are out in the outer court would get some of the leftovers maybe. They would get even serve lesser food. And what was clear is that the church was being divided between the rich and the poor. There was a class distinction within the church. Either way, 
It's the same point. They were dividing between the haves and the have-nots. And so they were either eating in front of them or they were eating before them so that the poor who couldn't bring food to the potluck had nothing to eat. And the other ones were there for so long beside the wine that they were what? Drunk. Paul says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? He says it would be better for you to what? If you, if you want to eat all that food and you want to make a pig of yourself, he says, do it at home. At least have the respect for everyone else in the church that you what? Eat at home. Don't be doing it in front of everybody else. Do you not have houses? Of course you do. Why don't you do it there? If you're that hungry, eat before you come together. And then he says this, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Wow. Do you despise the church? Do you hate the church? The church of who? The church of God. It's not just the church, it's the church of the living God and you are doing what? You are putting divisions within the church and you are shaming the poor. You are making class distinctions in your church. You have the have and the have-nots, the slave owners and the slaves. And you, you have the audacity in the church to make those distinctions clear. He said, when you came to Christ, you came what? At the foot of the cross. Jesus said there's neither bond nor free, male or female, right? Jew or Greek. Everyone is what? Equal at the foot of the cross. And you are coming to celebrate communion and you dare to make distinctions when the Lord Jesus Christ made no distinctions at the foot of the cross. He says, how dare you? He says, what shall I say to you? Shall I, shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. How can I praise that? What good can I say about that? You have made distinctions right at the very foot of the cross. And Paul says, listen, you are doing it all wrong. Instead of communion being a time where we celebrate our commonness, our equality in Christ, where there are slaves and free, where there's rich and poor, where there's male and female coming together at the foot of the cross. You've made distinctions at a time that should bring unity. A proper celebration wouldn't make distinction, but it would be a recognition that we are coming together as a body as we gather together to celebrate not our uniqueness, but our commonality in Jesus Christ. And anything that we do at the Lord's Supper that distinguishes between one another needs to be what? Put apart. 
Now, there's a couple things I just want to say. First of all, you'll notice when they come together. Notice that they come together for what communion? They'll say later that they come together as a church. Meet together, it says in verse 20. You cannot have communion without gathering. You cannot have communion without gathering the body together. Paul repeatedly says you must come together when you come together as a what? Church. That is the meeting of what? The ecclesia, the gathered out ones. In other words, we must gather together physically. You cannot do communion on Zoom. And tying that together, you have to understand that not only must we come together, that that communion therefore cannot be served to those who are not in the meeting of the ecclesia. Why? Because it says so in Scripture. When you come together. So we're not going to go to people who are, who are outside of this body and serve them communion because they can't be here. It says when you are together. And it is celebrating the unity of the church and you cannot be unified when you're not together. And so it is with communion. If we are, if this is a picture of our common salvation together and our unity together, how can we do it apart from one another? We can't. We can't. And so Paul says, don't let anything divide the body. When you come to communion, there should be no divisions over Wealth, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're male, you're female, whatever those divisions are, racial, you cannot have them when we come together. He says what? It's an abomination. You can't do that because you are, you are cutting down at the very fundamental thing about communion, which is what? the unity of the body and the commonness of a recognition of the salvation that has been granted by the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an equality at the foot of the cross. We cannot, we cannot disturb that. And so this morning as we, as we wrap up, we simply need to recognize that the Lord's Supper is to be a communion of the saints where we meet together without racism, without sexism, without class, without being selfish or uncaring. And to come in any other way, to come in that way is to what? Is to pervert the fellowship of the Lord's table. 
And so let us be those who come together, what? Recognizing that we are what? One in Christ. We stand equal before the cross, at the foot of the cross. May we never do anything to take our eyes off what we are celebrating. And may we never pervert the Lord's Supper by allowing these things to infiltrate us. Let us be a church that comes together united at the foot of the cross because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We again thank you for its clarity. We pray that you would help us not to fall into anything that would divide us, that we would not be one of those persons who is factious, but that you would help us to be a church that recognizes the need to be united in Jesus Christ, that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. And may we never desecrate or pervert the Lord's Supper by the attitudes and the things that we do as we come to celebrate it. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.